Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Leadership Now with me, Dan Pontifrac, in the house today. Wow. Heather E. McGowan. Heather is a future of work strategist, thought leader, researcher, and author. We're going to talk about something today and is one of the leading voices in the future of work. McGowan is a sense maker, a dot connector, a deep thinker, and a pattern matcher who sees things that others miss. Heather gives people the courage and insight that illuminates their path forward. She's transforming mindsets and entire organizations around the globe with her message about how the next phase of work will focus on continuous learning and how leadership must shift to guide these expeditions. Her groundbreaking approach to learning has made employees more fulfilled and innovative, leaders more potent and empathetic, and businesses more effective at reaching their goals in a rapidly evolving market. Heather's message is never more powerful than when she's on stage where her no-nonsense approach creates a fundamental mindset shift across the audience, leaving them both transformed in their thinking and clear in their path of action. As someone who's been in the audience with Heather, I know exactly what that means and have felt it. Her latest book is The Empathy Advantage, Leading the Empowered Workforce. We're going to get deep into this, Heather, today. Fabulous book. Well done to you and Chris and the team. You called in the book, The Pandemic, The Great Accelerator, where effectively in the setup to the book, um, as you get through the first few chapters, we've kind of shifted so fast, almost overnight, that many things have affected you know, our leadership, our culture, our organizational operations. So what's your summary, I guess, bullet point, if you will, or introduction to us today on what you've learned through this pandemic from how, again, the, the leadership, the organizational culture, the society really has fundamentally shifted. Well, first of all, thanks, Dan, for having me. I really appreciate you having me on your show. It's a, it's a joy to be here and to talk to you about this, among other things. Um, but I think one of the things we should start off by talking about is I don't think we have processed what we've been through. I think we had this mindset that just kept it getting extended, like we'll just lock down for two or three weeks and then we'll go back to normal. There's, there's still a going back language, which I think, yeah. is, I think it's a going forward language. So I think sometimes you have to just stop and take, you know, take stock of what's happened, how superbly we adapted, what we learned and what we would build from here. Let's stop talking about going back. How do we build forward from here? And that's one of the places we start in the book is to acknowledge some some of the stunning statistics on how quickly we adapted. We leapt forward five years in our progress in digital transformation in the first 60 days. We doubled the speed in which we're migrating to the cloud. And we effectively doubled, they think, the speed in which we're handing things off to technology. All that means is an unprecedented pressure for all of us to learn and adapt. And the only way through this is to have leadership that is ultimately empathetic, gets to know their people and helps them become intrinsically motivated. Okay, so you've also made the case early on in the book where a couple of things really point out to me. One of them is expectations on life experiences and particularly generationally. So when we're coming to work and arguably like when life occurs in and around work, the experiences or expectations of boomers versus Gen X, of which I am in the cohort, millennials and Gen Z are vastly different. And thus you make the case in the book 
through those expectations, the interpretation and expectation of the workplace and work itself are much different. So how is this affecting what leaders are supposedly trying to do if there's so many different expectations and we have these four different cohorts within the organization still today? Yeah. And so the generational expectations come from what were your shared experiences? And from from my view, there's lots of ways you can talk about generational change. But the other is how is work presented to you as as a promise or a social contact? So if you're a boomer, you were the last generation where you traded your loyalty for security. And, and that wasn't even true for all boomers, but that was the last generation that even had that as an idea. Gen Xers, first of all, if you were born between 65 and 80, you're a Gen Xer. Most audiences come in, they really, I can't forget half the Gen Xers to raise their hand because most Gen Xers don't know their Gen X, which is the most Gen X they ever. <laughs> I've never met a generation that needs a marketing department more because Gen Xers were the first generation to bring work home. We Spotify wouldn't exist with us because we invented the mixtape. And we were the latchkey generation, so we were born pandemic ready. And so Gen, Gen X doesn't have a real identity around leadership or the future. Everyone talks about handing leadership from boomers to millennials. I was like, wait a minute, why isn't even Gen X in the, in the conversation? Um, so millennials is the first generation where divorce was the norm. They're also a generation that came into their profession in the shadow of the global financial crisis. Mm-hmm. Many millennials will, may never catch up financially, And when that happens, you start to have a different expectation around work. If your idea around work, if you were a boomer and you came out of the greatest investment in infrastructure and education possibly ever, graduated maybe without any debt if you went to university and entered relative peace and prosperity for much of your career, you could look at Gen X, Millennial, or even Gen Z and say, well, these kids today. Well, let's let's look at Gen Z uh, close up. Every life stage they were in, there was trauma. They were born in 9-11. They never knew a time before terrorism. They had mass shootings in school and grade school. They had the global financial crisis. They started to feel economic fragility as children. Um, the UN climate report came out, said we had 12 years to save the planet when they were junior high to high school. Then the Black Lives Matter movement, the Me Too movement. And then they graduated in a global pandemic and they've never known a time without war. So when they're slower to move and less willing to compromise, there's a reason for that. They're graduating with mortgage level debts. They don't see as many economic opportunities and they see a tremendous amount of environmental and social responsibilities. So you'll meet many Gen Zers whose attitude is essentially, I'm going to work with a sense of purpose or not at all. And for you, the those parents out there, which are generally Gen Xers who have Gen Zs in their basement, I say, don't worry. I've never been more bullish on a generation. I think they're going to be incredibly important, reshaping the future of work. They're glacial. They're going to move slowly and cut a wide path, but they're going to work differently. And they've already proven that. So managing those four in the workplaces, understanding each of those sets of experiences, and those are four different tacit social contracts that you have to navigate. Indeed, they are, as well as you make the point about how the speed at which gender norms have actually changed and they're unmatched virtually to any other shifting societal norm. So not only do you make the case in the book where by Gen Z, the percentage of uh, gender norm difference right, compared to boomers seems to be at least 100x uh, by percentage, uh, you are suggesting that we also need to be cognizant and cautious of of this new reality in terms of gender norms. So tell me a bit about how that influenced and shaped uh, your book and your thinking. 
Well, first of all, this is this is my community. I'm a member of the LGBTQ LGBT. I stumble over those letters. LGBTQ plus community. So I pay attention to where I see more representation for my community, and I see my community growing rapidly in different areas. So I started tracking this because I realized that at some point that the change in the folks who identify as essentially, let's just say non-heterosexual, mm-hmm. you're either exclusively heterosexual or you're non-heterosexual, and that's a bigger bucket of, of things, was doubling every generation. And I remember you all know a Harari saying, um, who wrote Sapiens and in, in, uh, Homo Deus and 21 Lessons for the 21st Century, that a gender as a fixed marker may eventually entirely go away. And I thought, well, that is way off course. And then over the next decade, I paid attention to how quickly it's changing. And I know we've had a lot of social backlash uh, against that from the, from a conservative perspective. But my take on it is this. It's it's happening, and it's happening to your employee base and your customers. And mm. when surveyed, millennials and Gen Z together, which is largest share of the workforce, Gen Z is going to be 30% by 2030, 50 and 55% of them say you shouldn't have fixed and exclusionary gender markers in your language, in your restrooms, in your customer offerings. So this is an impact on how you manage and relate to your employees, but also how you communicate with your customers. So it's a massive, rapid social change. And I get it. It's uncomfortable for a lot of folks, but we've all got to navigate our way through this because this is, I don't think there's any putting this uh, toothpaste back on a tube here. We've made a (laughs) transition here. (laughs) Yeah, indeed we have. And for the better, might I add, given yeah. uh, my family's experience in LGBTQ plus as well. Um, there's another shift that you make mention of and point out with uh, vigor inside the book. And that is, I guess, the center shift, where yeah. if, in simple terms, you know, you have a couple um, uh, diagrams that suggest we used to have at our core, our centricity was the job. And you're making the case as well that at that point, belonging sort of sat at the fringes on the outer rims of of the star system, if you will. And now, however, perhaps whether through some societal change, some generational change, all societal change, perhaps, you're also making now the case that actually belonging is at the core and job has flipped over to the outer rim. So tell us a bit about your, your research or thinking on how that shift is happening right now. Yeah, I think there's a few different ways that shifted. Um, we've got an existential crisis. We had a thousand plus days of, you know, feeling uh, the fragility of life, um, the impermanence of time. As, as the pandemic went on more and more and we became more and more kind of um, shifting from one way I look at it and I, I draw pictures here is we had a, a big circle called our professional life and we had no agency over that. And then yeah. we had a smaller circle. Uh, there was our personal life and we did have agency over that. And what happened over those thousand days is essentially those two circles began to overlap. The professional circle grew and the, prof- uh, I'm sorry, the personal circle grew and the professional circle shrank. And we had agency over both of them. And people got used to that idea of agency, trust, autonomy, and having to be accountable. That can't be left out because it is an agreement between uh, the employer and the employee. The other thing that happened is we used to, to center our life like this. We would get a job and see that job would be in Boston. And then I'd be like, okay, well, I need to move to Boston for this job. And then my spouse or partner, if you're if you're in a relationship, needs a job too, because most of us are not single, single income uh, units. And then if you have children, then you have to decide, you know, school systems. And so collectively you make a decision around your home, whether it's 
it's a combination of real estate school systems, you know, commuting distance. And then out of that, some sort of community might have formed and out of that community belonging became this weird byproduct. Hmm. And then suddenly when everything shuts down, you realize the most important thing is community and belonging. So you see people moving and Upwork thinks there's going to be 19 million people in the U.S. moving around the next couple of years. And I think that that great relocation is just beginning saying, you know what, I always wanted to live in the Colorado Rockies. I had coffee this morning with another speaker who'd been in New York for 20 years. She said, I'd had it. I had two little kids in the pandemic. I moved down to St. Petersburg. And now I'm figuring out how this becomes my center and what my community becomes. Her husband left her job, focusing on her income. They just did a complete, these are two type A, high income earning people who said, I need a different center. And I'm seeing that happen all over the place. So some of it was anecdotal stories. Some of it was data on, you know, migration patterns, some of it's, and so we hear words like, you know, quiet quitting, things like that. I think that's really, when work fits the right place in our life, I think we're going to make better value. Because if you look over the last couple of decades, we had a loneliness crisis, highest levels of burnout, highest levels of mental illness, disengagement levels were going up. The, they're still going up from Gallup. And in the 20 years that Gallup's been tracking, we barely moved those engagement numbers. So it's not like the old way was working and now we're suddenly loafing. Mm. I think we're now putting work in the right place in our lives and getting the right social connections and support so we can do better work. As a sidebar, I do like Erica Dewan's story about making that shift. If in fact you're talking about Erica, which yeah, I'm Erica, assuming you are. This <laughs> um, okay, another uh, anecdote, I suppose, to to relay here, name dropping. Uh, one of my uh, my coaches and dear friends is Roger Martin, and mm-hmm. I see Roger's work littered throughout the book in various ways. And one of the things you bring up is not just how our companies, through Roger's thinking, is have become decision factories. You make the point in the book that we need to be shifting from flat job-based work to complex project-based organizations, that it's not a nice idea in the book. You say it's essential. So that's a big shift. And how do you see that playing out, I suppose, right? And what are your recommendations for how leaders need to make that shift? Well, what you see throughout the book is most of my thinking is some of my, my original thinking, but it's connecting the dots with some of the best ideas that have been out there over the last couple of decades. And here's an example. Reed Hoffman suggested Towards the Duty more than a decade ago. And job sculpting was an idea that came out of Harvard three decades ago. Yeah. Now, Towards the Duty was basically saying, instead of hiring people into a job and acting like we're getting married until that one day when we get unceremoniously divorced and we get laid off without notice, we haven't figured out how to form relationships with organizations where we set mutual expectations on why we're coming together, what we'll learn and do together, and then how we'll separate and go on to other adventures. And learning tours was an elegant way of thinking about it using you know, kind of language from the military, that you'd do a three to five year tours, the first year would be learning, the second and third year would be building, and then the third and if possibly fourth year would be handing off to somebody else. And then job sculpting was the idea that all of the things that we do in the knowledge economy are based upon eight deeply embedded life interests. So things like quantitative analysis, enterprise control, theory and conceptual thinking, storytelling. So, for example, what I do is a combination of theory and conceptual thinking and storytelling. Mm -hmm. And I've crafted my own job around that because those are the things that deeply interest me. So when we're looking at organizations, I don't know the exact how we're going to do all of this. 
but it takes much more of a project-based approach. If you look at management consulting or design consulting firms, where they come around a project, different functions come together, people play different roles for the extent of the project, and then they go on the bench for some short period of time, and then they go on to the next project. And it seems that we're going to need much more of that sort of flexibility rather than rigid jobs that we're acting like we're you know still in a production line. Which then, again, bring, brings back to one of your earlier points about belonging. You can feel a, a greater sense of belonging if you're upskilling, reskilling, and finding a greater sense of purpose in your role because your role is multifaceted, you're continuously learning, and you're not just stuck in the swim lane of, quote, the job, the job description, and the job title, which can be, you know, I guess, deleterious to your own development. Is that fair? Yes. And I remember this was like probably three decades ago, a management consultant and design consulting firm had this idea of three homes. And I think like, this is another one that's mm. relevant for today. So your your one of your homes would be your function. So say I'm a designer. So I, I'm an industrial designer I, or I'm an engineer or I'm a marketing person or I'm a finance person. That's one home I have. I have a home in that functionally I sit with other people who do the same kinds of work that I do or trained in similar ways that I was. Mm. Your second home would be your project home. So I'm working on a project for Procter & Gamble or Microsoft or Logitech or whatever it may be. And I, I have that temporary home around a project. And then my third home would be my research area. So what is it that's I'm scanning the horizon? I need to understand chat GDP, or I need to understand some aspect of cybersecurity, or I need to understand generative design, whatever it may be. I'm always researching. And I bring that research back into the project as well as back into my functional home. I think that idea, which was way ahead of the time, is something we could think about now. And it wouldn't matter. SAT is is, is used conceptually because some folks are not going to be in an office. But having those three identities keeps you connected in three different ways that you're learning and growing in really interesting ways. Yeah, I've got uh, three or more facets I want to dig into uh, with you in the book because it's it's an expansive book of so many different ways in which to be that empathic type of a leader and taking the the advantage forward one of them was um i guess selfishly and um at the risk of uh sounding vainglorious i have a book coming out this fall called work life bloom and i'm taking a sledgehammer to the term work life balance of which you did as well in the book and you suggest that it's not actually work-life balance that's unachievable, it's life-work integration. And you also make a uh, good homage or pay homage to the concept of leisure. So mm -hmm. I was getting your, why don't you get your sense here for listeners and viewers? What, what's your take on the current status of work-life balance? And how does life-work integration and leisure play a part as you see in, in being a more empathic leader? We have to acknowledge, we have to acknowledge the level of burnout that we've had both stated and unstated. And so if we acknowledge that and we give people permission to say, I'm tapping out, I need a break, whether it's an afternoon or a week, we can then start embracing concepts like, okay, I'm putting my life before my work because I will do better work. When I put my life before my work, I will be a happier human. We will have a better society because I think we've put work first and it hasn't helped work. We have mm -hmm. not done better work when we put work first. Um, I think we'll do better work when we're full, more fully energized humans. The concept of leisure, which is basically, you know, if I can work remotely at least some of the time, I go on a vacation, I take my kids to Disney World and I really only had 
three or four days of vacation, but my kids really want to have a whole full week of school vacation. I stay there for two more days. My spouse takes them to the park. I work those two days. I have dinner with them. I'm with my family. I'm more connected and energized because I'm with my family. I'm still working. Mm -hmm. They're still getting their vacation. Or the other side of it is I might be on a work trip and I, I've done this a lot this quarter um, is, you know, I'll have an, I had an event in Palm Springs Two of my dear friends have a house there. My wife and I went, we spent a couple extra days and I got to connect with people I don't get to see as often as I'd like to. So it's it's a it's a way to nurture ourselves, I think, more that makes us better functioning humans. The most important asset in every organization is humans, and it's human ingenuity that's driving all of our value creation. So we have to treat that human like the precious asset that it is. And instead of just grinding it to a stump, thinking about how do we optimize the performance of the human? Even if we were doing it selfishly, we would treat it a lot differently than we have most recently. I love it. And uh, just as a heads up, uh, Empathy Advantage now will find a home through attribution in Work-Life Bloom because I loved when I got to that piece. And I have a, have a clip there that I'll make sure is found in uh, in my own manuscript. One of the things you also did very well in the book was to highlight sort of these five great lakes, I'll call them, um, and which ended up being delivering the great reset. So in, in no particular order, maybe they are in the order of the book. The Great Resignation, which then had a great refusal, which led to great reshuffling, which had a great retirement component, and then the great relocation. So these kind of five greats collectively delivered the great reset. Can you unpack that a little bit for us? Because I think it's a fascinating observation. Sure. So um, Anthony Klotz uh, coined the term the Great Resignation. And I had the privilege to speak to him and communicate with him a little bit while I was writing the book because his his view it was he looked at it not only what was happening starting in about 2021, but where it began. It really began back in 2009, since the last um, uh, recession we've seen mm. an increase in churn. So we have that happening, and it actually everybody thought it was kind of a phenomenon between 2021 and 2022 until they found out the quit weights were actually higher in 2022. And Josh Bershwin, uh, if you're not familiar with him, I would definitely recommend following his work. He's saying that it's actually more than just the folks quitting. It's actually sort of this creative destruction cycle. So we are creating new jobs with new skills and new needs. We're destroying old jobs that are no longer relevant. So even if the people stay in them and shuffle around, we're seeing like 50, something like 50 million people at any one time moving in the workplace out of one job into another job. So it's not just people walking out the door and saying, I'm not doing that anymore. This is just real tremendous churn. And as organizations, you have to think about, I can't keep any one project with any one person who can walk out the door at any one time. Mm -hmm. So you have to think differently about how we organize work, how we capture knowledge and share knowledge so that we keep business continuity. Those kind of factors come in for the great resignation. But it was seen as sort of like this one phenomenon, but I was actually like, there's actually a few different flavors of that phenomenon that are different. So there's the great retirement. Those are people leaving who weren't coming back necessarily, or maybe they may come back in a part-time way. And it's like boomer retirement. We've got 65 million or 75 million boomers retiring between now and 2030. We should have had plans for that. We don't seem to. Yeah. So either how we ease them out or how do we retain some of them or more of them? Because I read this afternoon, the fastest growing segment of the labor market is 65 plus. So there's got to be a way to retain those folks. 
And there's the great refusal. And the pandemic really did spur this because if you were getting punched in the face by somebody who didn't want to wear a mask or was wearing a mask for $7.25 to one hour anymore, it's like, my life isn't worth it for this. This is not worth it. If we had kept uh, minimum wage on pass, on par with pre-pandemic inflation, it would have been north of $23 an hour. So we're way behind on underpaying and treating people with much more dignity. So we're seeing that, and that is driving up some of our inflation pressures. I don't expect that to retract entirely. And I think we ought to give more dignity and better pay to people who do that hard work for us. Then there's the great reshuffle. 53% of people who changed jobs between 2021 and 2022 went into an entirely new profession or role. So that's people retraining to say, I hated this job. I'm retraining for that job. Mm. That's good. That's people doing what they want. That's humans working to potential. And then the great, great location was the one I mentioned earlier. That's people saying, you know, belonging is the center of my life or where I wanted to live is the center of my life. I'm not letting the job dictate where I live. I'm going to decide where I live first and then make work fit into that. And that's about 19 million people in the US. And collectively, that gives you the great reset. Collectively, we have an empowered workforce. The zeitgeist had shifted. If I were to name the book today, I might might, might call it Your Guide to the Zeitgeist. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's what it is. Um, and I don't think any, you know, however many people get got laid off today, that's a small percentage of the workforce. And it's not going to fundamentally change this feeling because it's coming out of an existential crisis, generational change in the composition of the workforce and labor shortages that they, they don't think are going to, they're going to continue for at least another decade. So we have to think differently about how we lead and motivate this workforce. And I think that's our opportunity if we're brave enough to seize it. That's an amazing answer. Uh, I have uh, spoken with Klotz as well, Anthony and uh, Josh person, good friend has been on this show before as well. So I completely agree. He's uh, amazing. I want to dig next into something that actually can uh, help, I suppose, right? Uh, look at the demarcation between where we've been the last 50 odd years and where we're going with something you've described as the human value era. Mm -hmm. So good old Uncle Milt, Uncle Milt Friedman and the Friedman Doctrines, shareholder primacy theory of which basically, you know, we're, I, I want to ask you, do you think it's possible to shift to the human value era from what has been the shareholder value era, particularly with publicly traded companies, but any company that's really in it just for profit and EBITDA only, and adopt this human value era proposition that you suggest? Or is it, is it simply lipstick on a pig and so for these companies to maintain the buybacks, the dividends, the stock, stock market gaming? Like, is the business roundtable actually the 187 of them that signed up to this idea that we need to move forward with stakeholder capitalism as opposed to shareholder capitalism. Tell me a bit about how you truly fundamentally believe that that's a part of this equation in the human value era. Yeah, sure. So I have to start by prefacing them by saying I'm a belligerent optimist in the lemonade business. So <laughs> I believe that I can manifest this and I'm going to. Okay. I'm with <laughs> you. You mean you have me at hello, Heather. So I just, you know, you know asking the question though. <laughs> So we saw a shift in, in in how we create value. And this is fundamentally a shift from a manufacturing to a knowledge economy. But in 1975, you know, something like 84% of the value created on the S&P 500, the enterprise value came from property, plant, and equipment. Exactly. We took stuff and we made other stuff with it. And humans were a cost to contain it. We wanted to keep our labor costs low. That's when Uncle Milk came up with his idea. We let that rain for 50 years. But, you know, a couple of decades after Milt uh, declared it the shareholder value, and he basically said the only social responsibility of a company 
is to return profit to shareholders, it started to shift like almost the next day, if you look at the charts, and now 90% of the value, and that was 2020 was the last calculation, 90% of the value of everything on the S&P 500 comes from human ingenuity, patents yeah, and ideas. Exactly. Yeah, well, the the as you noted, the the business roundtable declared in you know late 2019, just prior to the pandemic, that it wasn't working. Uh, John Hagel's research research shows you know we got better at efficiency, but we didn't actually get return on assets. We weren't creating new value, we're reducing the market, we're becoming more efficient, and then we weren't really optimizing the humans that were creating that value. So the SNC. The Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, in 2020 said we have to start accounting for humans if they're the most important assets. So we have these sort of, you know, little dots that were coming out. And I said, you know what, it's it's becoming really clear to me that humans are the most important assets in organizations. So could we just put lip service on that and continue to, you know, lay off people when we need to juice the market for a second? Well, it's going to last as long as we still believe that story. I mean, one of the ways I'm beginning talks lately is I'm holding up a $100 bill and I'm saying, what is this? And people say it's a $100 bill. I said, no, it's actually a two and a half inch by six inch piece of paper made by the crane company that's 75% cotton, 25% linen, and it's a 250 year old story. And it only has value because we believe that story. So it's as long as we continue to believe that returning profits to shareholders is the most best thing to do for the market and an entity, we'll continue to treat people this way. But research came out the other day that um, MBA programs that really, uh, you know, promulgated this Friedman shareholder value actually didn't create new value. They extracted more value from the workers, returned it to the shareholders, got a better bump in the short term, but saw no increase in value beyond that. No increase in value created and a lot of the talent moved quickly out of those organizations. And if your organization runs on talent, how long can we keep playing this, you know, kind of house of cards? Yeah. So I believe sooner or later, you can put lipstick on the pig. That's the beginning of making the pig look good. But we we got a beauty queen pig coming out there. You know, this is going to work out. I think <laughs> humans are the greatest asset, and we're going to realize that sooner or later. I think we're starting to. Well, it segues to my final question, and then we'll find out more where we can find out more about you, Heather. You uh, you make mention near the end of the book that uh, we can be fully human, and that being fully human is the greatest superpower that we can deliver effectively to our team members. So tell us a bit about what fully human means to you as we set forth with an empathy advantage. Yeah, and as you and I were, were discussing just before we we got on the call, so the book is called The Empathy Advantage, and a lot of people might open the book and expect it to say, empathy is your guide to, this is how you become more empathetic. That isn't what the book is about. That's the book where the book lands as the answer. Uh, this is a 200-page book that walks you through a shift in the zeitgeist where the only answer can be more uh, how to become more empathetic but it's not a guide to becoming more empathetic. It is really about why and how you would do it, not just a what. So given that, so where we end the book is we start talking about what does it mean to be fully human? And it comes out of some realities that I started asking some of the, the executives that I work with, you know, how many of you are leading teams full of people who have skills and knowledge you don't have? Now, that was always true when I spoke to CEOs, because that's what it means to be a CEO. But when you get to middle management, in some cases, even frontline management, I had more and more hands coming up. So suddenly, the leadership profile we had created of the unquestioned expert who makes decisions in certainty and is a little distant and drives productivity with 
you know, domination or fear or even humiliation, it completely backfires in an environment where you're managing teams of people who often have unique knowledge from each other. And so you need to make a fundamental shift there and how you lead them and how you lead them is help them become intrinsically motivated. I was speaking with a bunch of uh, pharma execs about two weeks ago. And one of them said to me, oh my God, this means I have to know my people. I don't, I haven't known <laughs> I needed to know my people when I was just driving process, but now that I have to inspire potential, I have to know them. And it was like, she said it without irony. And I was like, trying not to laugh. And then she's like, I really do. And I was like, yes, you do. And so it's in, in the other thing is that the reason people stay in organizations, like stay long-term and commit to the organization to learn and grow with it, to, to commit to creating organizational capacity is their relationship with their direct supervisor. And that is, do I have a sense of belonging? Do they care about me? Do I believe in them? Do I believe in their vision? And that doesn't happen when you're not fully human. So you've got to love your people. You've got to get to know your people. They've got to get to know you, the authentic you. And that's a pretty big shift to the profile we've been pushing prior to this. Heather McGowan, you are the great zeitgeist, I guess, right? That's the best way to describe you. Uh, the Empathy Advantage, uh, just a fantastic book, I must say. Uh, I get to read a lot of books because I'm in the space of reading books. There it is. And um, I just want to thank you for putting this out. You and Chris, uh, just a fantastic job. Where can we find out more about uh, Heather, you, and the book? So the book is available everywhere, of course, always on Amazon, but I always encourage people to check out your independent bookstores. Thank you. Thank like you. to support those. The name of it is The Empathy Advantage, uh, Leading the Empowered Workforce. You can find out more information about me in the book at heathermcgowan.com. It's M-C-G-O-W-A-N. Also, my biggest learning community is LinkedIn. So I post on there multiple times a day what I'm reading, what I'm thinking about. People tag me in articles, ask me what I think about their reading and writing about. Please join my learning community. You will definitely make me smarter and I need your help. Love it. Well, you've helped me and uh, I'm in your vapor trails through a lot of the learnings I got from not only LinkedIn, but but this book indeed. So thanks for this today, Heather. Look forward to seeing you on the road somewhere in another speaking gig or whatever it may be. I uh, appreciate that. Thanks, Dan. Thanks so much for having me. All right, folks. Another episode of Leadership Now with me, Dan Pontefract, today, the one and only Heather McGowan and the Empathy Advantage. Thanks again, Heather. Thanks.